Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. That is one of the vital strategies in commercial litigation. If I can find a counterclaim so that both people are complaining, uh, the best case scenario is I zero out the other side and I win, but the worst ca- I'll take the worst case scenario, which is both sides get zeroed out. Please rise, court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, this is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm hanging in there, Steve. How are you? Uh, good, good. You know, I, I, I thought we were going to be coming out of the uh, out of the pandemic and now, uh, you know, here in Georgia. And I know where our, our guest, uh, uh, Victor Vital, and I totally screwed up. Victor, I didn't ask you how you pronounce your name. Is it Vital? You actually or? got it right. There's okay, a long good. story, but it's not for this podcast. It's <laughs> right. family history. It's actually, okay. be, it's actually be tall. But okay, VTOL. We say vital. When the VTOLs moved to Texas, just like Vaudeer, right. is Vaudeer in Bordier. Texas, That's right. VTOL That's right. turned into vital. Vital. To the okay. vitals in the Texas diaspora. Perfect. I can understand that. Yeah. Well, that because yeah, you know, Yvonne changed to basically whatever anybody wants to say here. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, and where I was going with that before I totally went on that, that, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, side, um, side show there where I was realized I had forgotten to ask you how to pronounce your name is that, uh, that we're getting locked down again in Georgia, I think. I mean, you know, with our governor, who knows what's going to happen, but, uh, uh, but I think we're definitely on the rise. And I know down in Texas where you are, Victor, that you guys are on the rise too. So, uh, uh, we were talking beforehand about uh, how much uh, time you've been spending at home and how how uh, little we've spent on uh, things like gasoline and and uh, eating out and stuff like that. Right, right. I'm hunkered, hunkered down here at the house. I call it the, uh, Dow- the the South Dallas County Office of the Dallas Office of Barnes and Thornburg. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> I love it. Well, um, and I did, I should mention and uh, Victor, feel free to speak up here. Uh, you know, uh, Yvonne, we need to mention that, uh, one of our past guests on, uh, the great trials podcast and, and a fantastic guest, a fantastic trial lawyer from Houston, uh, Steve Sussman, unfortunately, uh, passed away. Mm, yes. And, um, and, you know, we were proud to have him on the show and, uh, and he was, uh, he was, he was a great guest and, uh, he will be, uh, be truly missed. He was, a uh, a good person and a, and a great trial lawyer. Absolutely. And a recent guest of yours was a partner. That's of, right. Uh, Steve's. That's right. That's yeah. right. Absolutely. So, a lot of great trial lawyers at that firm. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They've done some, uh, done some fantastic work. Um, and well, they've been, they've been kind enough to be on the show and they helped us find you, Victor. That's so. right. That's right. I'm glad for that. <laughs> I, I now follow you guys on Twitter. I love your uh, Twitter feed. Oh, wait. I wish I, we had something to do with that unless Yvonne does, but I think that's all, uh, I think that's all Allison. (laughs) I have have nothing to do with it. Allison is so good about getting us to do it. And she actually, somebody texted me a couple of days ago and they were like, wow, I can't believe you're like, you know, like getting dressed professionally and putting makeup on and going to the office. And I was like, I am not doing that. What are you, what are you talking about? And it's one of these old videos on the uh, podcast, social media. I'm like, that thing is six months old. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably that's the last great. time I put that's on a suit. That's great about social media. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Why? Well, I, I, and I, I, I hate to admit this, but my, my wife gets on me all the time. I, I really don't know how to tweet. I mean, if I, if I wanted to, and I do have an account, but I've never used it. So, uh, 
I'll have to figure that out someday. Yeah, get with it, Steve. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm sure as soon as it, as soon as it as people stop using it is when I'll figure it out. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's yeah. That's exactly right. You you should learn TikTok. I think TikTok's right. probably over now, <laughs> right, too, right, right, so right. who knows? No, actually, TikTok is uh, raging. <laughs> TikTok's I got a, still I got, a, okay. I got a 12-year-old who's, who, who will tell you that. She's okay, trying to get me on there. <laughs> I, I mean, I got, yeah, I'm the same. I've got a, a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old, and they, uh, TikTok is, is is a lot of a lot of talk around our household, so. Uh, yes. Um, all right. Well, Victor, uh, without uh, stretching that anymore, let's tell everybody who you are, and then we'll talk about this case. Uh, um, and, and I have to say, this is a, a first, I mean, really a first for us, right, Yvonne? I mean, Victor, you were brought into this case uh, defending a case, so really on the defense side, and then mm -hmm. uh, had a counterclaim and, uh, and succeeded in, uh, while it wasn't a true defense verdict uh it was a uh an award to the plaintiffs of of no damages in the case and uh and then um uh some award for um wiretapping um and attorney right. fees in your case and we'll get into that because that's sort of the that's sort of the juicy part of the of the story but um but so this is a, a, a i think really a first for the for the podcast isn't it Yvonne? Yeah, yeah, and we're always talking about how we'd love to get um, defense lawyers on the show to talk about their perspective, and so it'll be good. We'll, we'll we'll get to Victor did both really, so we'll get to pick his brain. Right, Victor. Right, so, Victor's so got a ton uh, on both sides. Yes. Yeah, I uh, uh, have had the benefit of having a true defense verdict, no liability in my career. I've had liability with zero damages, which is a defense win. But this was my first case where there was liability. But I exonerated the client through an affirmative defense and then flipped the script with the counterclaims. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. it was really cool because Allison sent us an article about the about the case and I started reading it and I was thinking like this couldn't be the right case because, mm -hmm. you know, because you really did flip the script. So. I'm always looking for the position of righteousness. <laughs> I, and, and, and we're definitely going to talk about that because at the, at the heart of this, it was a contract case. And one of my first thoughts is, how do you make a contract case, you know, really interesting for the jury? But then I read your closing argument and uh, you laid some passion in there and, and really got some uh, really great, great themes for the, for the jury. I really enjoyed it. And that's what I enjoyed doing the most is finding those themes of righteousness, regardless of which side I'm on the, which side I am on, the, which side of the case I'm on, and uh, just going at it. Well, um, Victor, let me make sure I tell everybody where they can find you. So Victor is, is a partner at Barnes and Thorn, Thornburg LLP based out of Dallas, Texas. You can look him up at btlaw.com. Uh, Victor's a partner there. Uh, he's a graduate from, uh, from Oakwood University that we were talking about, uh, magna cum laude, and then Texas Southern University, the Thurgood uh, Marshall School of Law, summa cum laude, uh, which I think you... Uh, um, actually uh, were a professor there for a little bit too, if you're not still teaching there. I was a trial simulation professor there, teaching okay. trial advocacy from 97, 90, no, it's 96 to 99. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. And, uh, and as we've talked about, you've tried, uh, more than a hundred cases to verdict. Uh, you're in the Texas, uh, lawyer verdicts hall of fame for the largest employment verdict in 2012. And also for a $34 million verdict for uh, fraud and, and breach of fiduciary duty in 2016, your practice areas cover uh, a, a broad area. I, I'm looking at them. They, they, they go from patent litigation, unfair competition, business tort cases, uh, 
through product liability uh, cases, through catastrophic injury, all the way to consumer fraud and white collar criminal uh, matters. Uh, so you've, uh, you've truly uh, tried just about every type of case out there. That's right. Um, and then I should, I should mention you've uh, been uh, named a, a super lawyer every year or a rising star every year, I think since 2004, been named best lawyers in America uh, for the past five or six years and, uh, and named as the uh, Franchise Times Legal Elite and uh, just a num- number of other awards. So we're really uh, happy and excited to have you on the show, Victor. It's my pleasure. I'm, it's like I told you, and Yvonne, I'm glad to be on the show. Good. Well, let's talk about this case. Let me first. I'm going to see if I can get the name of the case right, um, because uh, it, it, it's it, it's quite long. I mean, so it, it starts out as Mugdock Tavern Investments and Duffy One versus Cat Seattle LLC, Ascend Health Corp, and Richard uh, Doctor Richard Kresh uh, versus uh, Duffy One LLP and. Uh, James Graham. And uh, as we'll talk about in this case, this this basically started out as a breach of contract case or a fraud case uh, brought against your clients who were Cat uh, Seattle and Ascend. And then there was a counterclaim brought against uh, Duffy and um, and uh, Mr. Graham. And uh, and as we said, the, the end result was... Um, uh, essentially a no liability uh, finding because uh, um, on the contract, uh, even though they, they, I guess they did technically find there was some fraud there, uh, but a zero damages award and then a um, finding on behalf of your client because of some illegal wiretapping uh, and an award of attorney's fees um, in, in favor of your client. That's right. It's a complex case with a lot yeah. of, <laughs> lot of moving parts. Well, good, good job, Steve. <laughs> He well, this is, this is where, it. no, no, this is where it really starts because now I'm going to try and get the, the contract relationships right. And, uh, and, and Victor, you tell me, uh, tell me where I've messed it up. But, um, so, he, so there was a, a rehabilitation facility named, uh, Schick Shadel, uh, Schick Shadel, Okay. Mm-hmm. Schick Shadel. Yep. Uh, and essentially the, uh, Jim Graham and Duffy, uh, seemed like they were the owners of, of, of Schick Shadel. And they were selling it to Cat Seattle, which was a uh, which was owned by Ascend Health, uh, right. and, and Cat bought a ninety five percent share in that, leaving five percent with Duffy. Uh, and part of that agreement was that they were going to open a um, a Schick Shadle uh, facility uh, in the Dallas area or in, or somewhere other than Seattle. And I think you it was settled that it was going to be in Denton, in the Texas. Dallas area. Yeah. Okay. Right. And then uh, sometime after that, that was in, in August of 2011, in uh, I think it was early 2012, um, Ascend and, and CAT merged with United Health Services, uh, but United Health Services didn't want that 5% uh, hanging out there that was owned by Duffy and, and Mr. Graham. So then uh, Dr. Kresh, uh, uh, along with uh, uh some other folks from Ascend went to renegotiate in order to purchase the remaining 5%, which was done for about $2 million. I guess during that time, there were some allegations by Duffy that Cat uh, and Ascend weren't holding up their end of the bargain as far as, um, as, far as setting up a, a program that fit within the uh, Shadle sort of model, this uh, the aversion therapy model. Uh, and so 
somewhere in there, a, a case got brought against your clients. For um, and then, and then, and then it was during this, this negotiation to purchase the other 5%, uh, that Mr. Graham, uh, who was the primary owner of Duffy, uh, I mean, invited, uh, in, invited the, um, Mr. Dr. Kresh and uh, I think his CFO uh, over C page yeah, to, uh, to negotiate it. Um, he was there with his lawyer and he was secretly recording the meeting by a, by a big ballpoint, bin, not big, not big. I shouldn't throw them under the bus. A, a ballpoint pen. It was, uh, it was a true double, uh, 007 gadget. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and then, and then, you know, and, and just like in Georgia, uh, Texas is a one-party consent rule, so if he's there in the room, uh, you know it may be frowned upon, but there's nothing illegal about it. That's right. Um, and then, but apparently during that um, time, uh, he and his lawyer left the room, but left the pen in there, left it recording while your clients were in there talking about uh, terms of the deal, uh, and and that's when it, it crossed over into illegal wiretapping, um, and. Uh, and so that was that. I mean, so I think yeah. I'm, get, I'm taking you, a long time getting to this, but that's no, basically you, the case. You nailed it. You really <laughs> did. Did a fantastic job. Uh, I just uh, want to take a little bit of time yeah. just to give some deep, uh, some more background that will contextualize how Duffy feels about or how Graham felt about this deal. Graham was an alcoholic, okay. and he and the owners of Mug Doc Tavern actually were treated at the Seattle facility. It then started to deteriorate from a fiscal standpoint. They came in with resources and bought the facility and managed it themselves and decided, we love this facility. We love that it recovered us or helped us recover from alcoholism, but we don't want to run this thing anymore and we want to expand it. So that's where Crush came in. And Crash through Ascend Health Corporation decided to purchase Schick Shadle in Seattle, but a condition of the sale was that they expand the treatment outside of Seattle. And obviously, because Jim Graham is from the Preston Hollow area of Dallas, he wanted it here in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex, and they settled on Denton. Uh, so that's a little bit more background to help the listeners understand what Jim Graham's motivations may be. Right. Uh, those might be the, I think those probably are the purest motives he had. <laughs> right, 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 right. right. Yeah. And then as it pertains to uh, my client, uh, my client actually owned uh, a hospital, a number of hospitals, a number of uh, mental health and behavioral health facilities, I think 10 or 11 in total. This one was the only one, however, that had minority ownership. So okay. Steve Crest, uh, uh, Steve Crest, or Richard Crash was able to sell the rest of the hospitals outright to uh, UHS, but uh, in the portfolio that he had, this was the only one that had a special purpose entity that had minority ownership. Got it. And I was that's helpful because I was really curious in reading about the condition of opening another location while you're selling it seemed a little strange to me. Like it was sort of like, if you don't, if you're not running it anymore and you're selling it, what, you know, I I was less familiar with that idea of a condition of the, the sale being to Mm -hmm. actually being, 
you know, if you're selling it, then you're selling it. Like, what do you right. care where the locations are? So I was curious about that. So what's interesting is, and I think uh, one of the undertones in the case that the jury picked up is that Jim Graham made money off of the transaction and put as a condition of the transaction to open up a facility in Denton, Texas. But Jim Graham is a man of means and he and his partners in MugDoc had the capability of doing that themselves. So what they did is they made money off of the sale and foisted the, uh, their desire to expand this onto somebody else. Got it. And, right. and, their I think desire... the jury, and I think the jury realized, you know, you're complaining that these guys didn't do it right, but you made money off of the transaction and had them open it up and you could have done it yourself. But Jim was tired. Jim Graham was tired, frankly, of being a manager and he wanted to get back to his oil and gas company in Dallas. Got it. And so that that desire to expand, again, if we're sort of attributing sort of the purest motivations was that you know, this is a, this is a model towards addiction treatment or, and, and recovery that, that meant a lot to them. And they just wanted to sort of have it available to more people. Right. That's exactly okay. right. Um, I, I should, should add that the, I think the initial 95% sale was for about $9 million. And then the uh, remaining 5% was sold for another 2 million. Was that right? Approximately. Right. Okay. Um, and, you know, so um, the, the crux, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I understand the, the, the claims that they were bringing against your clients is that the way that, you, that the uh, Denton facility had been opened up wasn't really following the Schick Shadel, um, you know, methods and wasn't treating the same types of patients. It seemed like there was some contention about the, the um, treating psychiatric patients and geriatric patients uh, that, that, um, you know, wasn't what Schick Shadle would be doing and then whether or not they were getting the appropriate level of training. And so they actually decided to sue for fraud and, and, uh, and breach of contract, uh, which, you know, it, it's reading the two different closing arguments. I mean, you know, you, you it's, it's not, it's not, uh, uh, rare to see closing arguments that, that, are so different from each other, but it, they really did seem to give a, a, a big difference in, in how the facts laid out, right. um, you know, from, from both sides. I, I mean, if you, if you were to listen to the, uh, your opposing counsel there, um, you know, Jim Graham should have been wearing a halo, um, you know, because, you know, he was only acting out of the purest motives whatsoever. And then, um, and then of course to watch, you know, to look at yours and you're like, Hey, this guy's making 11 million bucks. I mean, you know, it, it's not like he's doing this because he's, uh, he, you know, he just cares about, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the, the program. I mean, he's, he's here to make money. He's a smart businessman. And as you said, I should have pointed out, he was owned a, a an, an oil company in the Dallas area or was a, it was an executive in the oil company in an oil. Right. That's where the secret, uh, meet, that's where the spy pen meeting happened in his oil and gas offices. So right. I actually played off of that as well. He's, uh, in the, uh, the, the, my client, Steve, uh, uh Richard Crash and Steve Page are in the offices uh, in Preston Hollow, which is a wealthy part of Dallas, in the uh, in a huge conference room in Jim Graham's oil and gas company as they're being victimized uh, by felony wiretapping. So, Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. 
And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah. I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, They do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate (laughs) because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and, you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're awesome. So call uh, digital law marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. So, uh, you know, one thing I thought was really... uh, you know, that I noticed you picked that you were uh, pointing out in your closing, but I, we didn't actually get to see, I guess, much of the testimony about it. Um, but, and I was wondering about it, it's, you seem to suggest in your closing that he sort of had his pick of, um, of devices that he could have used to record and, and he, his favorite one wasn't there. So that's why he ended up using the pen. <laughs> I'm laughing because uh, th- this is one of those things I didn't uh, figure this out in discovery. Uh, and I'll actually, uh, when we have a moment, want to talk to you guys about how I figured out that a crime took place. I didn't notice it immediately. But to the, your point, Steve, this was just a gift in the testimony. Uh, I had the guy on cross-examination and I'm asking him about the pen and he starts like non-responsively spouting off that he used the pen because somebody else had uh, the phone and then no, was it the phone? Maybe it was the other device. So there were like three <laughs> or four devices he mentioned. So I created uh, a picture uh, for the jury that he has this room where he goes in there. It's like, which uh, secretive <laughs> right, you know, yeah. deceptive device will I use today? A lapel right. pin, a spy pin. Let's use the spy pin today <laughs> because the other guy is in another meeting with my other favorite gadget, probably deceptively recording people in that meeting as well. That's right. <laughs> I mean, you, yeah, you sort of have this picture of James Bond walking in and, you know, exactly. what, what, what should I use today? <laughs> exactly. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. So <laughs> the, the, the gotcha in the case was supposed to be this recording and they had to produce it early under our disclosure rules. So I'm like uh, very maniacal about my cases. When I'm not working, I'm working. If I'm driving home, I'm thinking about my case. And I have a recording. So I would just spend hours, guys, and hours going back and forth in my commute, listening to this recording, memorizing it. 
so that I could just, you know, quote it uh, at length in trial without actually having it played. So I'm listening to it one day on my way home, and it dawns on me, those guys, the lawyer and Jim Graham actually just left the room. So what happens if there's nobody in there consenting? And I look at the Texas Penal Code, and lo and behold, that's a crime. And then I look at the Civil Practice and Remedies Code, and there's a private remedy for it. So I had already turned the case uh, into um, a, a counter plaintiff or a plaintiff's case for me, which is one of my strategies just across the board, period. But when I found out I can inject criminality into it, uh, okay. I was just very excited. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I, I never thought about that. I mean, we've had, it has come up a few times um, for me where, you know, maybe you'll have a client who will come to you and they've recorded something and, and Georgia is a one party consent state, but it never occurred to me to even think about really the implications of if they had something that was recording and then they left the room for a second, like what, right. if, you know, but, but it makes total sense. And so, so what happened? Like, as you were listening, did you just suddenly realize like, hey, these guys said they were going to leave the room or, or suddenly there was nothing from their side? So it was that it was muffled. You had to listen very closely, but they said they were going to leave the room. And then I heard like clunk, like a door closed. I'm like, that was a door closing. Then, so I rewind it and I realized that what they had said was we're going to leave the room and let you all talk clunk after two or three seconds. So I call my client and I'm like, Dr. Kress, uh, were you in the room by yourself with Steve Page at any point during that meeting? He said, actually, yeah, come to think about it, we were. And it was like, I got him, I got him. I got back to <laughs> wow. the office the next day after looking at the penal code and the civil practice and remedies code. In Texas, we have the benefit in state court of liberal pleading rules. It's the wild, wild west in Texas right. in terms of civil practice. I don't have <laughs> to ask permission as a general rule. So I amended my pleading the next day. I don't need leave of court. And I was off to the races. Wow. Well, and, and, I, and I noticed, at least in the uh, first part of the um, closing of, of your opposing counsel, I mean, he didn't really touch on that issue much at mm -hmm. all. In fact, I think he was reading, at one point, he was reading from the transcript of the recorded meeting. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, if this is wiretapping, I'm, I'm not sure I'd be waving that thing around the courtroom. But uh, So it, it was a double-edged sword for them. The recording uh, was helpful, they thought, because the recording actually was, uh, in their view, uh, chock full of admissions from Dr. Crush, Dr. Richard Crush, that fraud was committed and that he laid down on that issue and essentially conceded it. The flip side is, not only did it have this nugget, this golden nugget of criminality in it, but it actually was the crux of my ratification argument. Mm -hmm. Because by admitting and complaining about the fraud, but then uh, proceeding uh, with another transaction uh, for which you made more millions of dollars, you in essence said, I don't care that I was defrauded. Uh, I'm going to capitalize off of the fraud. He actually got a premium on the 5% that he was supposed to sell because he essentially was sticking up crushed and paid and saying, I don't know if I'm going to sell the 5%, even okay. though I'm supposed to, I think I might actually go to court and sue. And he got more money and then he ended up suing anyway. Right. Which right. is why I ended up calling him greedy 
in my closing, not only was he savvy and shrewd, but he was sneaky and greedy. I like to use those words. Uh, you probably, guys would probably have people on the show to talk about things that hook the reptile brain, which mm-hmm. in my view is really a misnomer. It's not the reptile brain. It's the limbic brain right. uh, that you're, uh, but I don't want to uh, uh, disparage anybody's model. I mean, it means a lot to a lot of people, but for me, I'm all about getting into that limbic system. So anything that, you know, sneaky and greedy, uh, I like to use those words. And if I can turn a contract dispute, which is complex and or, you know, plain vanilla into a dispute where I get to inject things that get people uh, going from a limbic system, uh, I really like doing that. If that makes uh, sense. No, no, absolutely. And it really, you know, to me, the way I was reading is you were really doing a great job of just polarizing the case as far as, uh, you know, this isn't just a, a, you know, contract, you know, two sides of a contract. I mean, this is really right versus wrong. Right. Uh, good versus bad. I mean, you, and I, and I loved your description in your closing where you said, look, you know, there's a lot of legal terms. I think about legal terms every day. I know what all these things mean, but you don't need legal terms for this. I mean, you know, what's right is right. And what's wrong right. is wrong. And you know, this is wrong. That's right. I mean, in a, uh, I, I believe in good old fashioned storytelling. You have, um, you have uh, a hero. Uh, most of the time it's our jury. That's the hero because we need them to rescue uh, the victim, which I turn my client into. Uh, then you have the antagonist, uh, which I turned Graham, to, Graham into. Uh, now, to be as objective as possible, I think what the jury decided, and I got some feedback, so I had a little bit of inside baseball on this. I think they did not see a clear victim. Uh, they saw uh, two antagonists, uh, mm-hmm. to be honest, uh, but they saw one as being worse than the other. Uh, and what you saw through the no liability verdict on contract was people saying, we're not giving this guy a verdict on the contract claim. But what I was told by the jurors, uh, when they talked to us about the verdict is in essence was a, uh, consensus verdict where some people thought there was, uh, were, there was fraud, but most of them didn't want to find fraud. And the people that didn't want to find fraud said, we'll find fraud if you guys agree to ratification. So that's right. how they answered those two questions. Yeah. But then yeah. they showed that Jim Graham was the, uh, was the worst villain by uh, actually tagging him for the wiretapping crime, which I think really turned the case. I mean, most people think about that case and even the judge uh, I've talked to uh, since this verdict and after all, after the finality of the verdict said it was really the spy pin aspect that right. really turned the case. Right. Well, and how crazy, because, you know, the whole, the pen gets involved and they think it's going to help them out in their case. And then right. it ends up being the thing that turns it right. all in your you know, favor. It just goes to show you that you can't, uh, sometimes <laughs> you can plan as much as possible but you can't anticipate everything. And uh, Chris Fredrickson is a fantastic lawyer. Uh, and uh, I don't think, however, in a million years, it actually dawned on him that he was producing something that was going to hurt him. As a matter of fact, and in full uh, disclosure, again, I'm telling you guys, I'm no genius. It took me a matter of months, like listening to this recording over and over again until the light bulb popped on to me. Um, I, I thought one of the things that was that was really interesting about your closing, I mean, it definitely hooked you in and and in in trying to understand the facts of the case and and not having everything that happened at trial, um, you know, I thought the initial opening um, 
uh, not your opening, your opposing counsel's opening was just kind of um, boring. And I felt like yours, you know, you really, you use this language. It really got you hooked in. But I also thought you did something interesting, which is we talk at our firm a lot about, especially when you have a really complicated verdict form. And it sounded like this one was fairly complicated. How you both engage the jury in your themes and your story, but you also make sure that you provide them the sort of um, nitty gritty guidance to fill out the verdict form correctly. <laughs> That's right. And, and it seemed like you that. really had a good balance of that, of, of, of going back from your story to going to this, the areas of the verdict form and, and telling them what you thought they should do. Right. Right. It's um, I'm actually, when I get off of the phone with you guys, I just got a new case from another law firm that uh, is a trial case. And right now I'm actually mapping out my uh, jury charge, my verdict tour. Uh, I'll start from there and you just reverse engineer uh, what you need to demonstrate uh, from an evidentiary standpoint and thematically how you want to frame and develop the case. Right, right. So I, I want to talk a little bit, it, it, from the way I could tell, uh, it looked like a lot of the the claims that they were making about some of the fraud, uh, you know, that it allegedly happened was based on uh, maybe some promises or some some statements that had been made that weren't in the contract itself. And so then uh, I thought, you know, the way you... Uh, you, you handled that in your closing was by telling this story of an employee of Jim Graham, a, poor, a, a doctor named Eric Davis. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I noticed because you, you, you first started off by saying you're going to tell a story about Eric Davis. And then by the end, you were calling it the Eric Davis principle. And I was like, it's funny that I, I love uh, if I can like grab subplots. Uh, to the main plot and use the subplot to actually uh, further the main plot, which is uh, Jim Graham is greedy and he's hypocritical. Uh, I, I like doing that. So that's where I, I just, uh, that, that was the night of the closing argument after the jury charge of the uh, verdict form conference that I actually uh, came up with that. That uh, yeah, Dr. Eric Davis negotiated an incentive with Jim Graham but unfortunately for Dr. Davis, he didn't get all the I's dotted, the T's crossed. And uh, old Jim Graham said, sorry, uh, there's no deal until the deal is done. And you didn't get that deal in writing. So too bad for you, Dr. Davis. But here's this guy who dares come into the courtroom and violate the Dr. Eric Davis principle for himself. So what's right. good enough for Dr. Davis is not good enough for Jim Graham. That is just diabolical in my mind. It's crazy that you could actually come into court with two faces, no to Dr. Davis, but yes for Jim Graham. That's crazy. Yeah. So anyway, you guys get a sense of the passion that I might bring to a close. Oh, yeah, yeah. And when you brought up uh, one of my, so uh, um, there's a judge here in uh, Chatham County in Savannah who loves uh, throwing out the goose gander rule. And, you know, if if you're making one side do it and then they, you know, it comes around, he's like, he's like, goose gander, goose gander. You know, you got to remember that. You brought up the goose gander rule. He's like, you know, if he's going to, you know, force that, you know, Dr. Davis to have it in writing, well, then he's got to have it in writing. I mean, it's just, it's only fair. And what's great about that email, the email uh, had nothing to do with the main issues in the case. The email, uh, the the meat of the email related to the case, but embedded in one of the strings, maybe the email string, maybe on the third or fourth page was this Dr. Davis story. 
So, you know, it's actually not even relevant to the case, but it's in evidence now. Nobody redacted it out and said there's a or got a limiting instruction that I can't use it for all purposes. So I just exploited it. Yeah, I, I was thinking that because as I was reading, I was like, you know, this doesn't really seem like it's all that relevant, but uh, but it's a great story and it really brings right. home your point. <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> um, Victor, can you talk a little bit more about what the what the plaintiffs or, you know, the cross claim defendants were saying that your clients did not do at this new location? So uh, Shadel is an aversion therapy. And it's based upon very specific protocols that have been developed over the years. And the protocols, as the plaintiff envisioned them, was this five-inch, this five-inch binder, three-ring binder. And every single one of these things had to be complied with, down to how uh, the facility looked, and you know, this TVs and gazebos and all of this stuff. So. In essence, what Jim Graham was saying is when I walk into Denton, Texas, into Mayhill Hospital, it doesn't look like and feel like uh, Schick Shadle. Just like me saying, if I go into McDonald's, I want it to look and smell and have the feel of McDonald's. But if you saw my closing argument, can you get a Big Mac? That's in essence <laughs> what we promised to do. We promised to bring Big Macs to Denton, uh, Texas. We didn't necessarily promise to have all the, the look feel of uh, Chick Shadle as long as you got the meat, the Big Mac of the therapy, which is the aversion component. So they complained that we weren't uh, complying to the letter with this huge array of um, protocols. Now, to make the argument for them, they will say, well, even you didn't even get the Big Mac right because the people weren't adequately trained. Uh, to uh, prepare the Big Mac. So even if you were supposed to only be given the Big Mac and not the fill of McDonald's, you still should have trained the people so that they could do it properly. Uh, We actually contested that and said the training was adequate. It does seem like a really unsympathetic position to sort of be like, um, you know, this was the deal, but you're not doing it right or you're not doing the way we want. It seems kind of like complainy, but I think... That's that can be the struggle with the jury in a lot of business cases is getting right. them get, yeah. ha, making your clients sympathetic or getting them to care about something that seems maybe nitpicky. And, and when you have a rich guy like I had on the other side that I can villainize for his wealth and say, look, guy, if you wanted it done your way, you could have done it yourself. Uh, right. But you decided to benefit to the tune of millions of dollars and then complained that we weren't serving the Big Mac the way you wanted to serve. Yeah, you know, I in in reading the uh, the closing of your opposing counsel, it did seem like maybe there was some uh, some witness testimony that wasn't let's just say great for you, and um, and I thought it was interesting because because uh, so these were these were coming from people that were employees at the uh, Schick Shadle facility up in Seattle. Right. And so while they were technically employees of your client, uh, they had been employees of the defendant. And so, or not right. the defendant, the plaintiff. And, um, and so that must've made for, uh, I guess, a little bit of awkwardness it where you've got this, these uh, split loyalties, I guess. Very, very difficult. So I tried the case with a young man who's now a fine trial lawyer himself, but he was an up and coming trial lawyer at the time as my second uh, chair, Nicholas Saracanian. Nicholas at the, or Nick at the end of the case said, man, 
we lost the case. I'm like, what do you mean? We got a defense verdict and we, but we didn't win the main counterclaim we wanted to win. So he was, uh, you know, bemoaning the verdict. I said, do you actually realize what we did in this case, Nick? Every single person who was a witness of ours testified against us. <laughs> uh, and the client, uh, the owner, UHS, was not going to, quote, unquote, retaliate because uh, we want them to tell the truth. We want them to tell the truth as they understand and believe the truth. But the truth, as they understood and believed it, as you pointed out, Steve, was through the prism of their loyalty, their decades-long loyalty to Jim Grant. Uh, he was a patient there, then he owned the place and he turned it around. So they see him as a hero. So here I come in trying to villainize this guy and they weren't having it. So uh, my opposing counsel tried to use that against me and I did the best I could, which is to say, we don't tell people how to testify. Right. But regardless of how they testify, the truth is the truth. And the truth is that this guy is shrewd, sneaky and greedy and he's not entitled to anything. But it was that probably is the most difficult challenge I've had in any of my cases to have witness after witness uh, give deposition testimony that actually got played at trial that was harmful to my side of the case, but helpful to the other side's case. Yeah, I, th I think one of my even I think one of the statements that was uh, read in the closing uh, was that when they were asked about what they were doing down in Texas, there was some comment made of saying, you know, well, Send isn't even setting up a shick shadle, you know, at all, you know, they're doing something else. Right. And right. so that, that certainly, you know, when, <laughs> when you talk about the, 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 the fraud, that certainly doesn't sound helpful to your case. No, it doesn't at all. They, they was shick shadle and name only, as they said, up in Seattle. Nice people, by the way. I mean, the, the people that uh, run the facility in Seattle, uh, really believed in the treatment and they had passion for it and they had a passion for Graham. Uh, some of them, I don't think, spent uh, a whole lot of time at Mayhill, but their version of what was happening at Mayhill came through the prism of Jim Graham's complaints. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob, or Liz, or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. The settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. 
so yeah so what i forgot to tell our listeners is that um if you mention the great child's podcast when you call into legal technology services or write into them uh they will give you 10 percent off of your first job so mention the podcast great trials podcast and uh they will give you 10 percent off of your first job and again that is ltsatlanta.com legal technology services uh, give them a try so I, I am inter- interested in hearing, you know, I think you said you got to talk to the jury afterwards. I mean, so they did find that your clients, uh, you know, committed fraud, uh, but then found that I, the, I guess through this second um, meeting where they paid another $2 million for the 5% was essentially a ratification. Right. He knew, he knew the frauds going on. He decides to go through with the deal anyways. Um, what did they, I mean, I know you said, I know you said that there was some jurors that said, you know, we, we think there's fraud, some jurors that didn't, but what, what were they, what were they uh, looking at where they, they thought that there was, I guess, some, you know, some basis for some fraud? Was it all the witness testimony? some of them, yeah, all of the witness testimony against us that uh, what we did and didn't, uh, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. And I guess some people thought uh, the intent of Dr. Kresh is evident by uh, the deficient opening in Denton, Texas. So that was uh, the when you have performance, uh, the circumstantial evidence and uh, the rule of circumstantial evidence regarding fraud in Texas. And I'm uh, going to paraphrase it very, very broadly: is if you want to know what somebody's intent was, and if you, they had fraudulent intent, uh, you look at the agreement and what happened immediately following the agreement, and what the uh, opposing arguments claim was is that immediately after signing the first contract, the first asset purchase agreement, we immediately started breaching the agreement, and that was evident that we evidence that we never intended to live up to it in the first instance. So the jurors who believed uh, that it was six fatal in name only, and we were supposed to open a true six fatal, thought that from the very beginning the uh, evidence was clear that we cared more about having a general psychiatric facility than we did having a true six-fatal facility. There were others, however, that believed our theory of the case, which is a Big Mac is a Big Mac. It doesn't matter uh, if you do it through a psychiatric hospital with a small sliver of it being uh, six-fatal. As long as six-fatal is offered uh, and the essence of the program or aversion therapy and the true protocols that go into making a Big Mac are complied with, then you have a six channel facility. But what they all agreed with across the board was uh, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't claim fraud, then capitalize on the fraud by getting a premium for your 5% then come and right. see. <laughs> right. And that's what he did. He used essentially... The entire meeting was Jim Graham throwing out these huge softballs uh, with Dr. Crush not knowing he's being secretly, secretly recorded. And Jim Graham rolls in the court and says, look at all these concessions I got, uh, either express uh, or explicit concessions or implicit admissions by him not responding to things I said in this recording. And, and so as far as the damages he was claiming, was that, was that a, uh, was there like a liquidated damages in the contract there, or what? There was. So the, okay. the biggest part of the uh, the first victory we had in the case was to turn an eight figure recovery into a $1 million recovery. So through summary judgment practice, we uh, took away 
what was supposed to be an eight-figure recovery for Jim Graham. And we asked, he, he tried to vitiate the uh, liquidated damages provision or escape it by saying that uh, through an extra contractual theory of, uh, well, the fraud vitiates the provision, so I shouldn't be bound by the contract, which was induced by fraud. Uh, Texas uh, law, however, is very favorable to defendants in this regard, and we were able to kill the eight-figure recovery case. So our ultimate um, recovery exposure was $1 million plus punitive damages on top of the $1 million. Okay. Okay. Because I, I was, I was. That was the other part of what I was thinking is, well, what, what's the damage here to, uh, to him after he's already made the sale? But, uh, but now I see it that was if you don't yeah. open uh, in a year, we get a million dollars. Is what the contract said. Uh, but they rolled in the court and said, well, we don't want to be bound by that either. We want more than the one million dollars. Right. Okay. Okay. So how did the? Um, so uh, it sounds like uh, Dr. Kresh may have. Uh, had some damaging stuff out there from this recorded conversation. How did he do on the stand when uh, in front of the jury? I think I'll put it this way. I don't know that the jury uh, liked either Dr. Crush or Jim Graham. Sort of just uh, rich guys suing rich guys, you know, exactly. who cares? Exactly. Yeah. exactly. However, that is one of the vital strategies in commercial litigation. If I can find a counterclaim, so that both people are complaining. Uh, the best case scenario is I zero out the other side and I win, but the worst case, I'll take the worst case scenario, which is both sides get zeroed out. Right. So uh, if I can turn a dispute uh, with one side suing uh, one person to two people suing each other, uh, then oftentimes you get the jury saying, I don't care. These are two rich guys. They got more money than I can ever think of. Right. Nobody gets anything. <laughs> right, right. Which is what you want in a defense case anyway. Nobody gets anything. But if you can uh, try to create some degree of righteousness on your side and a villain on the other side to get to that path of zero, uh, I like doing that so that the jury has to figure out who do we hate the most? Right. <laughs> yeah. I like that tip because I, I think one of the things that's tricky when you do get a business dispute case is that, you know, as opposed to like a car wreck case, a products case where there's sort of like you have this forensic evidence or like a reconstructionist or a design expert that you can kind of get in there. And there's some things that are just, you know, those facts are what they are. And you can kind of investigate the case that way versus I think one of the things that's tricky about business cases when they come in is you you usually getting, you know, that one side of it and that, you know, their perspective, their knowledge, the evidence that the, pay, the documentation that they have. And I feel like a lot of times your options are limited until you get start digging into discovery to figure out what what else is out there, what, what somebody exactly else is going right. to say. That's exactly right. Um, well, I, um, I wanted to find out, you know, when you approach a case like this, you've talked about how you come up with your themes. What, what, how did you approach jury selection in a case? I assume Dallas is, uh, you know, at least in business cases, probably not quite the same, but it would be considered for a, a plaintiff's case, probably a more liberal, uh, jurisdiction or more favorable to the plaintiff side. But how do you approach this in, in picking your jury? Well, actually, I want to speak to that. Uh, the demographics in uh, Texas and Dallas in particular have changed such that bus uh, in business cases, as well as injury cases, uh, we have turned into a plaintiff's verdict hotspot 
you want a large verdict in a business case or a catastrophic injury case, a wrongful death case, file it in Dallas, Texas. Back in 2014, when I tried that, that trend was just in its developing stages. Uh, what I wanted here in this case uh, were jurors who were going to stick to the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. So uh, a lot of the uh, voir dire that I didn't get to send to you guys focused on uh, people literal following the literal terms and words of the contract versus the feel and the spirit of the contract. So that was one of the themes that I fleshed out in voir dire, uh, as we will say in Texas, but voir dire uh, <laughs> elsewhere, uh, so that I could figure out who would be a uh, Dr. Kresh uh, defense juror as opposed to a plaintiff's juror. And that was further to the Eric Davis element of the case. I mean, it was uh, what's good, the, the good for the goose, the, the goose gander deal that uh, you talked about earlier, Steve. Uh, what Jim Graham wanted was sort of things that weren't necessarily in the contract, but if you look at it, you think about it, it uh, from, from the penumbra of the contract, that was kind of his uh, argument. And we wanted the jury to look at the literal terms of the contract and what was in there, what wasn't in there. And did you find with your ultimate jury, I'm just curious if it, if it, if those sort of, if that, if those principles, that idea of looking at the black letter of the law and the contract, if that resonated more with, um, you know, certain types of professionals or, or people of a certain age or anything Not like necessarily, that? not necessarily. I, uh, I think you find people across the board in that regard. However, people who in business typically deal with contracts. Uh, are typically going to read contracts more literally than those who don't deal with contracts day in and day out. Yeah, I, I remember thinking, you know, one of the arguments that I think uh, Mr. Graham was making about the contract and what the terms were in there is, well, you know, that's just all boilerplate, yeah. which kind of, kind of <laughs> suggests like you don't need to read it. But I mean, this, he's a sophisticated businessman and he's obviously right. been in business for a long time. And, um, uh, uh, I, I was wondering how the jury, I mean, obviously they didn't take, take that too kindly, but I mean, I, no, I think, they didn't, yeah. they didn't, they didn't. So I'm laughing because, uh, I remember this bit like it was yesterday. And what I remember is I was cross-examining Graham on the merger and integration clause, which doesn't happen a lot, but in my commercial cases on the defense side, it's one of my favorite, uh, items to cross-examine contract plaintiffs on is the merger and integration clause, because, Especially in fraud cases, what uh, what you're trying to what a plaintiff is trying to do actually circumvents what the merger and integration clause seeks to achieve. And even if I don't get a jury instruction on merger and integration, it still resonates very well with the with a jury uh, who is a literalist, a juror who's a literalist on contracts. If they're seeing a claim that says ABC, but the contract says this is the entire agreement, ABC is not in the contract. So in closing, um, I actually jumped into the jury box, which is a device I use a lot. Um, I, I sat down and told the jury, you probably saw this from the transcript. I said, Jim Graham sat right here and he looked at you as I'm looking at you right now. He said, blah, blah, blah. And then I turned and looked at the binder, the exhibit binder that was in front of me. And lo and behold, it was open to the exact provision that I was arguing about. 
And it was circled because I had circled it on cross-examination. So not only was the binder open, but it was open to that very provision of the contract on merger and integration. So, so uh, again, I, that, that's where that came from. So uh, uh, you're saying you jump into the jury box with the jury? I'm sorry. I, the I witness box. Box. Oh, witness. I'm glad, okay. Yeah. I'm glad you picked oh, okay. up on that. I'm I was going to say, because if, if I jump into the jury because, box, I think a judge would have my head. Because <laughs> I, would, I would hate for this podcast to end and for people to be saying the jury box. No, I just I jumped into the witness box. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. I looked at the jury. Although in closing, I get as, I, I get as close as I can to. Yeah. Jumping in that jury box, especially <laughs> right. if there's some person on the jury that I've had a particular rapport with, and I know that they won't be offended if I put my hand inside the rail as I talk to them, et cetera. I will do that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I remember when I was uh, actually when I when I was in law school, I interned for the public uh, defender's office, federal, the federal public defender's office. And um, the uh, I remember the federal public defender during one of his closing arguments and he crawl he, he climbs up in federal court onto one of the um, the witness stand and he's slamming his, you know, hand into it. Like the witness said this, you know, and I was like, man, that's just great. I love him up there in the, uh, you know, it, yeah. it just paints the picture. So I, I like doing it's that. It's one of my favorite devices. <laughs> I've done it in federal court too, uh, with the federal judge looking at me with side eye, but he was, <laughs> right. <laughs> I knew I could get away with it. I knew you would let me do it, but, uh, that type of flair you can do in state court without anybody blinking, Right, but right. not a lot of people do it. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I also wanted to, uh, because I, I, you know, um, I think, um, your physical actions when you, when you're making an argument are important too. And I, and I, uh, couldn't help but picturing you when you were talking about that you were cross-examining Jim Graham and he started to backpedal and then you made, you made a, co- you made a comment that, you know, like I, there's not enough room in me, you know, in here for me to backpedal as far as he backpedaled. I was backpedaling. <laughs> yeah. I was backpedaling. And that was uh, the associate who tried the case with me. He said, of all the things you did in that trial, when you moonwalked from the jury box to the opposite wall and you bumped up against the wall, I even, it, I, I, I was moonwalking too fast or backpedaling too fast. And when I bumped into the wall is when I said, there's not enough room in here for me to backpedal <laughs> as much as he did. <laughs> so I was interested that you picked that up, Steve, because yeah. that's exactly what I was doing. <laughs> oh, I love man. that. That's one of the downsides about how we have to learn about the cases. We read the transcripts and you, and you, yeah. we know it's, there's so much more happening that we just but, can't see. But what's great is you guys have picked up on a lot of what happened in that courtroom, which is a credit to what you guys do in this podcast. You read so many trial transcripts. You guys are very good at it. Well, <laughs> and, and it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Vaughn was saying when I read the, the, your, uh, opposing counsel's, um, you know, closing and then, you know, and I, I was like, well, you know, he's, he's pretty straightforward, pretty, uh, you know, didn't seem like he was too attacking, and then, you know, he, you're straight out of the box. You're like, Mr. Graham is no victim. You know, he's a savvy businessman. He knew what he was doing. I was like, man, he's, it was you, you, could, you could read the passion right there. I, I, I kept reading being like, there's going to be an objection any second, right. any second, <laughs> just, just to try to like throw you off your game. Somebody's going to object and you just right. kept going Nothing yeah. Happened. Yeah. All, all uh, the way so into the Eric Davis principle. That's right. So if there's <laughs> anything that folks can take away from our discussion about this case is, uh, don't be cut and dry and plain vanilla in a contract case. I mean, you can have passion in the contract case too. 
I, well, I think you got to, and I, I tell uh, young associates this all the time. I was like, if you don't care about your case, the jury ain't going to care right. about your case. So you better. Exactly. Well, this has been just a great uh, discussion, Victor. I, we've really enjoyed it. I want to make sure, is, is there anything else about this trial that you want to make sure that our listeners, uh, that, that you've talked to them about that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet? No, I think uh, we've covered it pretty fully. Um, well, we really appreciate your time, Victor. And, and again, I want to remind everybody, um, the case is, and I'm going to, uh, it's called Muck Dock, uh, Tavern Investments and Duffy One versus Cat Seattle Ascend Health. And, and then it was a counterclaim against Duffy One and, uh, and Jim Graham. It was tried in Dallas, uh, Dallas, Texas in, uh, in May of 2015. And, um, and just a great result, great work. And I want to remind everybody that we've been talking to Victor Vital, a partner at Barnes & Thornburg in Dallas. And uh, you can look up Victor at vtlaw.com. Victor, thank you so much for your time. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.